I don't actually own a copy of of Invisible Cities because every time I get a copy, I give it away and I don't expect to get it back. You get it and it never stays long. It's almost like the book wants to go. Welcome to the Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast. I'm Michael Kelleher. Today we're going to be talking about Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities with Wyndham Campbell Prize recipient Darren Anderson. Darren is from the Catholic side of Derry in Northern Ireland, where he grew up during the Troubles. He's the author of Imaginary Cities, A Tour of Dream Cities, Nightmare Cities, and Everywhere in Between, and Inventory, A Family History of Derry's Troubled Past, or, if you prefer the minimalist American subtitle, Inventory, A Memoir. All right, so Darren, I changed my mind. We're not going to talk about Italo Calvino today. We're actually going to talk about the third season of Dairy Girls, if that's okay. <laughs> I actually know Lisa McGee, who wrote it. Um, yeah. She's a friend. Yeah, so we go back years together, and we're, yeah, we're from that exact world that that show. Yeah. That's, that's, that was my teenage years, basically. She's, she's encapsulated it incredibly accurately. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's almost like a documentary. It's, it's not really a sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> So as someone who grew up in an environment as politically charged as Northern Ireland, what attracted you to Calvino? I have a quote here that's something that rings absolutely true to my life and experience um, and perhaps is the reason why I gravitated towards Calvino. He said, I began doing what came most naturally to me, that is, following the memory of the things that I had loved best since boyhood. Instead of making myself write the book I ought to write, the novel that was expected of me, I conjured up the book I myself would have liked to have read, the sort by an unknown writer from another age and another country, discovered in an attic. And that was in 1951, so not that long after the war. And he came up with this book called The Cloven Viscount, and it's about a member of the nobility who, I think during a battle, he gets hit by a cannonball and he breaks into two, and he breaks into a good side and a bad side. And it's about his adventures and misadventures. And I was immediately smitten by his writing. That 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 break that he made, having grown up in a political place where there were lots of binaries and ideologies smashing against one another, to have a writer who kind of tried to transcend that, and in my opinion, successfully transcended it, was just a wonderful escape, I think. And was The Cloven Viscount the first book of his that you read? It wasn't, no. The first I read was The Barn and the Trees. Mm-hmm. And The Barn and the Trees is, is an amazing, amazing book. And it has it has a resonance that, it, it's very strange because I felt like I knew that story before I encountered his book. It was almost like I met someone I'd already met years previously there, there was a very very strange serendipity to it and I guess my experience with literature growing up so I, I grew up in Northern Ireland in a town called Derry and it was a culture a society that was very much ridden with conflict and division and there was a lot of deprivation we grew up poor and you know there was a low level warfare basically happening throughout my entire youth there was you know very militarized police. There were 
army patrols every day. There was a checkpoint at the end of my street and a watchtower that looked over our houses in Rosemount. And, you know, it was a hyper militarized place. So my, my love of literature began when I was very, very young. When I read Robert Louis Stevenson's Kidnapped, that was the first book I was, I've been smitten, addicted to literature ever since that book. I don't know how I found it, but I just, I've been in that kind of journey ever since. What, what is it about that book that gets you so excited or got you so excited? It's, it's the adventure side of it. It's something I've never lost. Every book I've loved ever since has those qualities. Every book, I, I became obsessed with books that have maps at the beginnings. It didn't matter if they were sci-fi or fantasy or nonfiction. If they had a map I was in, you know, I just, I loved that idea of escape. And I can look back now and I can analyze it in a very sort of Freudian or Marxist way or whatever and say, well, obviously that's a little kid trying to escape his environment. And to an extent that was true. We were told in that society, especially the, the Catholic side of that society, that we were, uh, we, we had our parameters spelt out to us. You know, you couldn't amount to much. You, you were told what to think. You were told who you were. You were told what your barriers were. You were told even what to dream, what you would be capable of dreaming. And then I found all this literature that completely escaped that, that, that offered you these ways out. And it might just be in your imagination, but it was enough to sustain me for years and years and years. You know, there was a very monochrome world outside, but inside those books, you could have this totally technical existence. Hmm. And the, the interesting thing, I think the direct connection to Calvino, I think came from my dad. So my mom is a, quite a Catholic lady and, um, she's incredibly funny and she's just this immense, wonderfully kind, but wonderfully formidable Irish matriarch. And she, uh, she's quite Catholic, but my dad was a totally different, uh, God rest his soul. He was a totally different creature. Basically he was a person who would have existed before the church arrived in Ireland. He was, you know, long hair covered in tattoos. He was a bodybuilder. He was like someone who you know, exists in mythology. He was just this out of time person. And because of that, he ran into trouble constantly. He was of a very rebellious disposition. He was always banging his head against priests and against the government. But he had this, he never ever schooled me in anything. He was very reticent about telling me anything or trying to teach me anything. He was a, a very quiet man, a man of few words, and he was distant. But he had this marvelous quality of allowing things, allowing me to just find things and then allowing me to think that I'd found them myself. You know, he'd mentioned like Howland Wolf in a conversation and I'd be like, oh, sorry, Howland, who? <laughs> and th then I'd be off down the rabbit hole, you know, listening to blues for the next 10 years. And so it is wonderful. He almost left these little crumbs for me to find. And uh, I see it as an amazing gift now having a son myself, it's because it allowed me, I, I would have rebelled had he taught me anything, I would have rebelled against it, but instead he was smarter than that. So he just dropped these little things and these little, these little portals, I think. And I, then I would follow them on my own. When Calvino was like discovering a planet, you, you don't just 
get into one book, you, you realize there's this entire world that you get to explore. And so when did you first encounter Invisible Cities? So I suspect it was one of my friends passed me it in my 20s. And I don't actually own a copy of, of Invisible Cities because every time I get a copy, I give it away. And I don't expect to get it back. You get it and it never stays long. It, it's almost like the book wants to go. It wants to be passed <laughs> on. And the interesting thing about Invisible Cities as well is like every time you read it, you find new things and it's not the same book. It's a little bit like that, you know, that can't step in the same river twice. Every time I go back to this book, I, I, I don't recognize it entirely. It's. I very, have the same, I, you know, just rereading it this week for the podcast, I had the same, you know, I, have, I read it most recently, probably, I don't know, two or three years ago. And I was reading it and I was like, have I ever actually read this book? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like I, I couldn't remember a thing from the last yeah. time I read it. It's bizarre. And it's, and it's such a small book. I mean, it should be, it shouldn't be that way. You know, I understand if you, if you go back to Ulysses and there's a sequence, oh yeah, I don't remember that bit in Sandy Mount Strand or, or that bit in the pub or whatever, but Invisible Cities is quite short. You know, you could get through it in a day, but every time I go back, it's almost like someone's changed it. You know, it's just a very, very bizarre book. And that, and that, I mean, that sums up Calvino. I think he's a sort of a, a writer of metamorphosis. You know, he's constantly shifting and, and he, you know, he was part of a lipo, which I should have mentioned earlier, which was primarily a French movement of, of writers and sort of scientists and mathematicians. And they're always playing these games and always giving themselves restrictions and in which to, to be able to sort of go wild within these restrictions, which, which is paradoxically very inspiring. I've done that for a couple of books where you give yourself, uh, almost like a manifesto to work within and it's incredibly it's counterintuitive, but it's incredibly inspiring to do that. And, um, yeah, so he, it's always, his spirit is really this spirit of change and contingency. I think it's, it's always see the different angles, almost like a kind of cubist painting where you're never seeing anything straight on and definitive. Everything's always, they seem to me a leap of a kind of movement of angles. It's all about angles. It's all about moving around, you know, and George Parekh, who's a, an, another incredible influence who I based my book inventory on, a book called um, An Attempt to Exhaust a Place in Paris. And, you know, it's basically him sitting in a place and just trying to find as many angles as he can subjectively. And Calvino has that spirit too. He's just a shift, a shape shifter. I think. So why don't we go back and talk a little bit about the book itself? Like what, what happens in the book? That's a very hard question. There is no plot or there's li very little plot, but it's based on. So, so one of the things I really love about Calvino is that he operates in the gray area between fact and fiction and history and myth and dream and reality. And so he bases it on the ostensibly true story of Marco Polo, the Venetian explorer who went to the far East and went, you know, went to the Himalayas and, and went to the court of Kublai Khan. And then he came back with all these amazing accounts. I've seen the highest mountains of the world. I've seen these golden palaces. 
And everyone back in Italy and Venice were just like, this is complete nonsense. They could, they nicknamed him the man of a million lies. <laughs> and most of the things he was talking about were, were true. You know, he had seen the Himalayas and the poor guy wasn't believed. It was a sort of the boy who cried wolf kind of thing. And so he came back and he, he dictated his journey supposedly to another prisoner at the time. He'd been, he'd been, uh, imprisoned after a battle, a sea battle, I think it was, and he was in prison and he sort of recounted his adventures and he got this reputation as being this amazing liar, but it was based on truth, but that, that gray area is already there in real life that Calvino taps into. And it seems amazing to me. I mean, I think my favorite city in the world is Venice. I'd been there, you know, numerous times and I will go there for the rest of my life. I absolutely adore it. But it seems to me so funny that Venetians wouldn't believe Marco Polo and they're actually living in this kind of floating city in the lagoon. But you know, his tales are too fantastical. They're, they're in a hidden city that is floating on the sea on stilts. So Calvino taps into this ambiguity and he's very much a writer that's interested in ambiguity and plays with ambiguity a lot. So the story of invisible cities is they have these little interludes where Marco Polo was talking with Kubla Khan and he's relating these places and they're very much places of the imagination. These essentially kind of thought experiments on Calvino's part. What would it be like if you had a city where time stops or if you had a city that you could see everything that you desire or a city where there's that, that, that has so many signs that you can't find the actual city underneath it. So he was doing these kind of thought experiments and he's riffing off this subject for the whole book. So each city, they have cities of desire and memory and death and limitless cities and, and cities that are ephemeral sort of mirages. And he just riffs on this idea, but every one of them, it's not like he's, I mean, conceptually he's coming up with these fantastical places, but really he's exploring different themes with each one. So, you know, he might be talking about religion. He might be talking about mortality. He might be talking about capitalism. So they're very essayistic, but written almost as kind of fables or metaphors, which is the thing I love about Calvino. It's not some rarefied experimental fiction type book. He's digging into the fact that this stuff is already ambiguous. You know, we live in objective cities. You know, there's a blueprint, there's a buildings made out of concrete and steel. Every single person is having this incredibly subjective experience. So I'm, I'm sitting in a flat in North London and we're, we're existing in a city under the lie of a singular name. There are 10 million Londons and they're all completely different. And there are parts of the city I'll never see. And there's parts of the city that will be unique will have a unique resonance to me. Calvino touches on all these things. He's a very poetic writer in that sense. I feel like there's something about this book in particular with Calvino that is extraordinarily generative for other writers. I feel like I, I, I'm constantly having conversations with writers who are working on a book based on invisible cities or have written a book based on invisible cities or 
are taking one of the thought experiments and expanding that into something else. And I, I wonder, what is it about this book that that does that? I mean, it seems to have this magic power over writers that that it transfixes them, but it also, it makes them want to make other books in, in response to it. Yeah. It's almost like a kind of program, you know, before computers were, were mass media. It, it, it's a sort of almost like an algorithmic book, you know, it, it really spawns, I guess this fits in with how the feeling that you have when you go back and it's different each time. It's almost like a program that's just changing and changing. And because of that, there are all these pathways that, you know, you could extend and he does that quite deliberately. He points in certain directions and very tantalizingly, and he doesn't follow them to their logical conclusion. So you, if you want to go off in that direction, you can. And I noticed books, definitely contemporary books that are indebted to Calvino and especially Invisible Cities. David Eagleman wrote a book called Some, and it was about all the different possibilities of the afterlife. And I, I just found it a fascinating book because obviously, you know, you think of heaven and hell and limbo, but he, he had all these propositions like, you know, what if God is a bacteria? What if God doesn't know about us? What if, you know, you have to live your life over again, but you live it in an order of, you know, you do all your sleep in one go, all your bathing in one go, all your work in one go. And that to me was like pure invisible cities. This book in particular reminds me a lot of like the Thousand and One Nights as well, whereas, you know, Marco Polo is, you know, just feels like he's spinning endless tales and you know, there's no threat that if he gets to the end of the story, his life is going to end. But there, you know, maybe there is. I don't know. I mean, there's some, there, there, there's something very Scheherazade-like about Marco Polo in this instance. And I think maybe that has something to do with that idea of the generativeness of the text, right? Where it's just sort of like one story leads to the next story and it leads to the next story in a never-ending cycle um, yeah. that, that gives life to things. And that 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 connects with another aspect of of the influence of invisible cities that I've found. So I, I work, I mean, previous to lockdown, I work with an awful lot of architects and designers, and they're fascinating, you know, computer game designers, builders of skyscrapers. You know, I did a lot of projects working with people who make tangible and intangible things, which I'm always very envious of as a writer. I'm, I'm definitely a frustrated architect, but I mean, if I can talk about them in massive generalizations, there are so many architects I've encountered that are obsessed with invisible cities. And I do wonder, is it that generative quality? Is it that sort of, um, the elusiveness as well, thinking about when you, because we'll put it this way, every city begins every work of architecture, but every city begins as they're kind of dreamt into existence. So they don't, you know, a building is not natural or inevitable. Someone has to think it up and it gets realized. And then we sort of think, well, it was, yeah, the Eiffel Tower always should have been there and it always was there. And it's like, no, no, it really, like it almost got dismantled. And that's the case for every single city on the planet. Somebody dreamt it up, you know, somebody dreamt up or multiple people dreamt up each city, but somebody dreamt up each building. And so it's that, that idea of we mistake the subjective for objective and we, and architects, I think know this probably more 
probably more than writers do, to be honest. They know that whatever they come up with has real world consequences. So I suspect that they come to a book like Invisible Cities because there's a kind of soulfulness to it. You know, what happens spaces, what happens connections and the movement of people and the passage of time, all these sort of things that aren't factored into an architecture brief. A book like Invisible Cities can be great for. It's a great thought-provoking repository, I think. And the Thousand and One Nights, I found this really fascinating story where I think it was the king of Iraq in the 1950s was a young man. I think he was a teenager and he took over and he decided that he was going to change the center of Baghdad completely. And he was going to get Frank Lloyd Wright in. It was one of Frank Lloyd Wright's last projects. Frank Lloyd Wright being my favorite architect, a man who I am obsessed with. They got Frank Lloyd Wright in and he was going to redesign the center of Iraq and they were going to build around what locally they thought was the Garden of Eden. They were going to put up statues of Sinbad the sailor and all these statues and iconography from a thousand and one nights. And Frank Lloyd Wright has designs. He was designing this new Baghdad. And unfortunately, then there was a palace coup and the young king got murdered along with his family. And the Iraq that we know now began. You know, eventually the Ba'athists came in and so on and so forth. And all the bloodshed therein. And that's that, that moment where the fantastical is actually real and actually possible and contingent, to me seems a very tragically Calvino moment. There was this young king who was living in the clouds as I did when I was a boy trying to escape the troubles. And he was living in the clouds and he probably read A Thousand and One Nights and was thinking, well, this is the place it happened and we can make this real. And then, you know, the real world pours in. And I just, I, I always come back to that. It, it, it's, there's something about the limitations of utopian there, which is a topic that Calvino pushes against constantly. So what's the difference between an invisible city and a visible one? I think it's almost strange to differentiate the two. And Calvino's, the way he weaves these things together shows that they're not even contradictions. The way I would word it would be subjective and objective. I can live in a place and have a completely different experience from my next door neighbor. There will be places that you, you go, that I can go in London where they're associated for me with heartbreak or elation, you know, places where you lost people, places where you met people. And it's almost like there's a secret level. There's a secret map that only you know. And it's the same for every city that you spend time in. You have these resonances and everybody has them. The idea of there being a singular map is simply not true. So I would put it that there is no differentiation between the visible and the invisible. And Calvino makes this point. He says, no matter how fantastical those places are in invisible cities, he reveals that they're all Venice. They're all basically Marco Polo riffing about Venice. It's his childhood home. And the idea of, Calvino touches on the idea of nostalgia. And I think in the sort of ancient Greek sense of nostalgia, I mean, in a sort of trying to get home. You go off and you have these adventures and 
Calvino always reiterates, you're, you're always sort of rediscovering the place that you left. He keeps coming back to this point. So however surreal those cities, the invisible ones that he builds, they have their counterpart in the real. They, they always have their counterpart in visible cities. And I think that's why if you're a sort of magic realist, I use that phrase very reluctantly, but if you're, if you're in any way kind of a magic realist writer, you have to have a very sturdy anchor to stop yourself floating off into, you know, anything is possible. So therefore there's no peril and there's no tension and, you know, people can just turn into birds and fly away and everybody's invincible. Calvino doesn't do that. It's very much rooted in the real. There's always that anchor. And because, you know, he was a guy who spent his youth in the, the Alps as a part of that and fighting Nazis, you know, it's like, and George Perec lost his mother in the Holocaust. And, you know, these were real people who'd suffered real things. And I actually think the fact that they're so imaginative is a great act of kindness because they could write the most harrowing stories. And instead they chose something, they chose mediums that are very joyful. It's a kind of gift. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I take away from this book always is that like, regardless of what the relationship is, I mean, he's he's clearly interested in the platonic ideas, right? Where there's this place and then there's this copy of this place and there's this relationship yeah. between them that is very complicated. You know, one might say it's a degraded copy. One might say it's a preferred copy. You know, one might say there's nothing but copies. There's all these different things. And when I read these, you know, and, and I try to picture these cities in my mind gets very much to the heart of what reading is, I think, whether you're reading fiction or poetry or whatever, because you construct the city as the reader. And that city, it once you've built it, it's, you know, if I, if I tried to say what I saw in my mind, it would be very difficult to describe somebody else. But in my mind, it's very clear. And then maybe I go back and I read that same book and that same description a year later, 10 years later, 20 years later, I find that it's very difficult to dislodge that original thing that I created. And, and I think that's very much like the magic of storytelling and the magic of reading at the same time is that you construct this thing and it's kind of built out of words and experiences and memories and signs and all of the things that these stories are constructed out of. And yet you have no idea how you built it and you have no idea how it got there or how long it's been there or how to ever get rid of it, but it's there now. My dad used to say, he used to like, he was one of those people that would just come out with very, very abstract things. You know, he'd be sitting, um, having a quiet pint in a pub somewhere and he'd just come out with, you know, one of the things I remember him saying is the people that are in your dreams, the sort of background characters and they're strangers. Are they composites of bits of people that you know, or are they, are they completely unique? Have you just invented them? And is that possible to just invent? It's, it's like the idea of inventing a new color. It's so beyond our capabilities. So he, he was always throwing these sort of questions out there. And I think everything probably is a kind of composite of experience. Everything is a sort of amalgamation of fragments of memories. I always, I always used to get irritated. I make an exception for some writers like Dickens because he's very, you know, strong in caricature. But say, for example, Ken Casey's Won't Leave the Cookie's Nest, his description of R.P. McMurphy at the beginning of the book, where he says he's a sort of wild, red-headed Irishman. And I just thought, no, 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 no. Don't tell me, please. Don't, don't 
put that image. I have this other, let, let me invent my thing for it. So, you know, I don't want it over explained because something will form anyway. You know, if you just read, this character will just sort of appear out of nowhere. You know, your mind will conjure up something and then you can never forget that that, that character then becomes very, very fixed, like you say. It's an extraordinary process. And I think that Calvino's good on this. His descriptions are, they have the vagueness of a poet. I think poets are really great in this sort of suggestive, I guess you call it the iceberg effect, the kind of, you know, you put a few lines in there and the, and, and the way that, you know, um, Coleridge had, um, Kubla Khan, speaking of Kubla Khan, you know, mm -hmm. the fact that the person from Porlick or wherever it was, came and, um, interrupted it. The fact that it doesn't end is, is the magic, you know, if he had have finished it, it would have been wonderful. But the fact that he didn't, that suggestive quality, that tantalizing, like we almost had it and it, and it drifted away in this sort of opium reverie is magical. It's, it's really literature for me has a magical quality. I, I use the word sparingly, but it does. It's definitely tapping into things that we don't yet know, or we may never know. I think the best, I mean, most writers, I guess would, would say that there are times when something just falls out of the ether and your best ideas just fall out of the ether and you cannot manufacture that. And you hit this sort of like, I, I often think it's not like building. It's not like, you know, being an architect. It's more like surfing. You're waiting for this wave and the wave comes or, or you're fishing and the, and the fish comes or, or you're gardening and the season changes and it's out of your hands. And you just have to be ready for it. And when it comes and, you know, nobody knows where it comes from. I think it's, I, I don't know if it was Thomas Mann that said, you know, when he's asked, where does your writing come from? He says he wishes that he knew because he would go there more often. It's like, we, I don't know where that, that place is. The best ideas come from a place that I don't have access to all the time. And nobody, nobody does, but where that place is. Who knows, but Calvino plays in that. It's a very suggestive book. It's a, it's a book that is almost like every little city is a mirage coming from that place, wherever that inspiration place is, that ether world. Calvino loves pointing us in that direction. Thank you everyone for listening. Please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review us on your favorite podcast platform and to follow the prizes on social media. The Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast is a program of the Wyndham Campbell Prizes, which are administered by Yale University Libraries Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. <laughs>